Uh, as Andrew mentioned, my name is Andy. If we have not met, I would love to, to meet you after church today. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning, but I want to start with a story. Uh, if you are a fan of Major League Soccer, you will be uh, really familiar with this story, but likely you've heard bits and pieces of this no matter if you like professional soccer or not. So last summer, towards the end of June, there's a lot of echo in there. I, I'm hearing a, a ton. You guys picking that up? I don't know if there's anything we can do about that. Working on it? They're working on it. Towards the end of June, uh, the worst team in Major League Soccer was Inter-Miami. Inter-Miami, towards the end of June, was on a seven-game losing streak. Uh, attendance was way off. There wasn't really a lot of hope that things could change. And so they were at the very bottom of the rankings. Now, about the same time, I was browsing online, looking for some training videos for my two boys who love soccer. And I came across something called the Messi Training System. The Messi Training System. And this was a comprehensive and very expensive video platform where the, uh, the eight-time, and there he is, Ballon d'Or, uh, world athlete, world soccer player in the entire world, Lionel Messi, had put together this training system, these videos, and it was thorough. Now, we didn't buy this video series because it was way too expensive, but this thing covered, it, it covered everything. It covered every workout, every drill. It went over offensive and defensive theory, team alignment, so that if your team wanted to exercise and eat and diet, basically become thoroughly inundated with how Lionel Messi himself had grown to become the greatest soccer player on the planet, then all you had to do was invest a little bit of money, a lot of money, in the Messi training system. Now, as I was watching those videos or the introduction for him, I had this sneaking suspicion creep in that if somehow the owner of Inner Miami had gotten a hold of those videos and gone to his team and said, fellas, I know we have quite a dilemma on our hands with where we're at, but I, I want you guys to know I found some videos. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna call a team meeting and we're gonna start watching these videos. The Lionel Messi himself has put together all the training, everything that we need, this packet of information, and if we watch it, then our season is gonna turn around. And I had this sneaking suspicion that if he were to do something like that, it wouldn't generate a, a lot of enthusiasm and probably wouldn't lead to any kind of tr team transformation. But do you know what he did instead? <laughs> the owner of Inner Miami actually went and got Lionel Messi himself to come to Miami. He brought him to his team. He brought him to practice in the flesh. The very man, the greatest soccer player on the planet, came to the worst team in Major League Soccer, and suddenly they could not stop winning. They kept winning and winning and winning. And uh, it was amazing how quickly things changed. Uh, the, the stands were packed overnight. There was this electricity and confidence that filled the team because suddenly Messi had come to Miami. Now, as crazy as that story sounds, we're going to start a series this morning where we're going to study through the Gospel of John. And what the author of that book tells us is that on a much grander and a much more glorious scale, something like that has happened, that God himself has entered time and space 
that he has come in the person of Jesus Christ to deal with the greatest of all dilemmas. And that God didn't just give us these truths and these rules and these principles, some sort of training package that we were meant to follow that would sort of keep us out of the darkness. But instead, he showed up himself in the person of his son, Jesus. Or as Eugene Peterson translates John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood, and he moved into the neighborhood. He came to practice. You know, and throughout this series, as we dive into the Gospel of John, my hope is that each one of us would press down on this particular question. That we would say, if that's true, that God showed up in the person of Jesus, then what sort of difference would that make in my life? What sort of difference would that make in your life? You know, a person's life, where you find your life, is where you find your meaning, your sense of purpose, your identity, your security, what satisfies you, what drives you, what motivates you, your priorities. That's your life. And what John is saying, and John is perhaps the person who knew Jesus better than anybody else. He spent more time with him. He was with him every day. And what he's trying to tell us is that I am convinced that there is one who has come. And I'm writing this because I want you to know him and to believe in him, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would have life in his name. That's why he's writing this letter. And our hope and our question and our desire is to press that in and to say, if that's true, then what kind of difference would that make in our lives as a church and as a people? So let's start where John starts in chapter 1 as we look at our text for this morning. A few of the verses from 1 through 18, which is the prologue of John's gospel, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, verse 9, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but he did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we ask that you who spoke all of the universe and all of creation into existence, that you would speak to us in our hearts this morning through your word and through your spirit. And we pray that as you speak, your words would go deep, that they would get all the way into the nooks and crannies of our hearts and our minds and our desire, even our will, 
and that we would sit before you ready to listen and that you would engage us and give us the very joy that John has as he writes this gospel. We pray in your name. Amen. Okay, and so if this book, if John is saying he wants to introduce you to Jesus, the way he chooses to do that, if we look at the passage, is he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in other words, the title of choice that John uses to introduce us to Jesus is this idea of the Word, the Word. Now that's a really strange way to introduce somebody. The Word? Why would he introduce Jesus by calling him the Word? Now, I want us to sort of try our very best to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody from the ancient Near East, a Jewish person who was hearing the gospel and trying to understand this for the first time. When they heard John introduce Jesus as the Word and use this language, they would have immediately gone back to the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. Now, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God says, in the beginning, he spoke, and all things came into being. And so, in other words, in the Jewish way of thinking, okay, there's this idea that when God spoke a word, there was a creative power that went forth. And when that word went forth, that creative power, there was definitive action and sometimes immediate results. It was as if a word spoken meant a deed was done. So Genesis 1, it starts this way. We're familiar with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, empty, and there was darkness. And the Spirit of God, and now in the Hebrew, that's the word ruah, means the breath of God. The breath of God was hovering over the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. There is this immediate effectual, creative power that goes forth, that suddenly things that did not exist come into existence, whether it's planets or stars or light or plants and animals. How did this happen? John says it's by the word of his creative power. The psalmist says the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33. Now, I think that we would understand this idea that words have power, and we realize that we can use our words in very powerful ways to encourage people, to lift them up, to speak things of love, and to help somebody out of a tough situation. Our words have power. We can destroy people and tear them apart with our words, but I also know that, relatively speaking, my words have very limited power. That oftentimes, for us to possess even minimal power with our words, we usually have to shout, or we have to get worked up and energized. We might have to deceive or manipulate or embellish to get what we think we want with our words, but it's not so with God. God simply breathes out, and his purposes are accomplished. And so there's this theme of creative power bringing forth definitive action that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. And John is trying to grab that theme and point it to Jesus and say, this theme is fulfilled in this person. Isaiah 55 says, just as the rain falls from the heavens and the earth, making it bud and flourish, so it is with my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but it will accomplish that which I desire and achieve 
the purposes for which I sent it. And so from a Jewish perspective, a word spoken is a deed done. When God speaks, it happens every time. It's immediate. It's decisive. It's creative in its nature. And God is saying, if you want to see the ultimate fulfillment of that kind of creative, definitive action, then you look no further than Jesus Christ. So here's what he's going to show us throughout this, this gospel. And this is what we should come to expect with all the things that he's saying about the word. Because again, this is just an introduction. This is the prologue. And every one of these themes is going to play out in the life of Jesus. And so what he is saying, what John is saying is you should expect that as I tell you story after story about this man that I've met and seen and touched with my own hands, I want you to see and expect creative, definitive, immediate power flowing through his very life and actions. And indeed, that's what we do see in the person of Jesus. He is the Word of God. Now let's keep building on this idea for a minute. The Word of God. What does that mean that John refers to him that way? Well, it wasn't just a reference to his creative power, but it was about also self-disclosure. The Word of God was a way for for God to reveal his character, to say something that was true about his very nature. And so when God is saying the word is Jesus, it's his way of saying that I want to tell you what sort of being that this creative power flows out from. What is he like? What is God like? And so listen again to verses 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And so the type of being that has this creative, definitive power flowing from him is relational. And we see that because the word with, God, he was with God, is the word pros in the Greek. And pros is a directional preposition. It means that you are facing towards someone. So with, not just like you are in the room with someone while you're looking at your phones together, but it's face-to-face, face-to-face intimacy. That's towards, that's prose. And so what he's saying is that from the very beginning, the word was face-to-face with God in intimate relationship. We talk about this a lot at our church, the idea that the face is a place of intimacy, You cannot look eyeball to eyeball with somebody. Now, if you're in a conversation, sure, you can maintain eye contact. But if you're not talking and you're just looking at someone in their eyes and staring at them, it's going to start to feel a little weird really, really quick. There's like one person you can do that with, and it's normal. And it's your spouse. It's your beloved. It's the person that you're intimate with because the face and the eyes carry that intimacy with them. And we know it. And what John is saying is from the beginning, this word, this he, was eyeball to eyeball, face to face with God, this mark of intimacy. And so what John is doing here is really different than what the rest of the gospel writers do to introduce us to Jesus. The rest of the gospel writers, they start with the baptism of Jesus, or they start with a birth narrative, or they walk you through, like in Luke, a lineage that goes all the way back to Adam. But John doesn't do that. He says, we're going back further. We're going behind the beginning. We're going behind the curtain, if you will, of the beginning. And what existed before any of that 
was this relational being, this eternal fellowship. And that, this word of power, enriched love and community with the Father and the Spirit is the motivational impetus then for all that gets created in the world around us. It's that fellowship of love, infinite and immeasurable, that John wants to highlight throughout this book. And he does such a great job. We're going to see this as we study. But what he's going to tell us is, you know what? The Father and the Son, they don't do anything without each other. They can't get away from each other. Everything that Jesus does, he says, it's because I learned it from the Father. Listen to John 12. Jesus says, I don't speak of my own accord, but only what the Father commands me to say, and even how to say it. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. John 16, 15, Jesus says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And then to Philip in John 14, don't you know that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say aren't just my own, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Did you know that when Messi came to Miami, he didn't come alone? A lot of people know Messi came to, to Miami. But what we don't always remember is that when he came, he came with two former teammates, Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba. He didn't come alone. There's one of the guys. That's Sergio right there. And the reason he brought them with was really important. These were guys, former teammates, that he had played a number of years with. They knew his game inside and out. He trusted him. They trusted him. These guys were just as important to everything that happened to that team and turning it around as it was for Messi to come. When Messi came, he didn't come alone, and he wasn't going to come alone. He was only coming if Sergio and Jordi were coming with him. And when they showed up, their relationship, their fellowship, the strength and the trust and the camaraderie and the force that they were as a little unit who knew each other so well, empowered and drew out the enthusiasm and the best in their teammates. I'm going to work that illustration until, I, until it's dead. All right, we're getting our money's worth out of that one this morning. Now, what I want you to know is that when John introduces you to this fellowship of the Trinity, he is not... Uh, he's not even going to stop there. He's going to push the boundaries one more step. And so by introducing us to the word, here's what he says, the final step that he takes. And this is going to blow past the boundaries of our imagination. He says, it's not just that he was in the beginning with God, but the word, in fact, was God, that Jesus is God. That's what he wants us to know. And so what does that mean? James Montgomery Boyce is uh, one of my favorite commentators on the book of John. And this is what he says. It's very simple. It's easy to understand. But this means that everything that can be said about God, the Father, can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all the wisdom, glory, power, love, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth of the Father. In him, God the Father is known. And he goes further and he says, if you can't see it in Jesus, then it can't be known about God the Father. Is that amazing? If it's not in Jesus, then we don't know about God. This is how John introduces us to Jesus. In verse 15, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so here's this enormous declaration. Jesus entered the world. And you can now know and touch 
and listen to and see the God who created everything. Does that blow your mind? That should blow our mind. This is the best introduction that Jesus could ever have. It's from John. And what he's saying is, you know, you have your Bible and you can look in Leviticus and you can read that God is holy. But when Jesus comes, you see what holiness looks like in action. In Exodus, you can read about how God is a deliverer. But when you see Jesus delivering people from demon possession and from their sickness, then we see what, we see what deliverance really looks like. Deuteronomy tells us that God is full of love and compassion. But when Jesus deals with the woman caught in adultery, we see what that love and compassion looks like in the flesh. The psalmist tells us that God is long-suffering, that he knows our pain with a mercy that is unmatched. But when we see Jesus live it out amongst stubborn disciples and he goes to the cross, we know what it looks like that he's long-suffering. And so this is why Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days... He's spoken to us through his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being by sustaining all things by his powerful word. You can kind of just get a sense why theologians talk about the book of John this way. They say, you could be a little child and run around and play and take a bath in these simple stories that you're about to read about Jesus. And yet at the same time, an elephant could drown in the depth and mystery and the profundity that we find in this gospel. It is amazing. But let's just try to capture, okay, what we've said. In Jesus, we find the Word of God, a divine being, infinite and immeasurable in glory and power, eternally existing with God in a relationship of love and intimacy, creating out of this community the entire universe, entering into time and space as a human being so that as both 100% God and 100% man, he could be the perfect expression of the Father, that in his words, we hear the Father's voice, and in his smile, we sense the Father's heart, and in his touch, we feel the Father's presence. This is Jesus the Christ. So John is saying, hey, as I introduce him to you, do I have your attention? Do I have your attention? Because I want you to know I've looked at him. I've touched him. I've spent time with him. And I want you to know who he is so that by believing in him and trusting in him, you can have life in his name. Now, as high and lofty as that introduction is, John is a realist. And we see that in verse 4. Because he reminds us that we live in dark times. He says, I know that God has come, but I also know the context in which he is coming is one of darkness. And so I want you to be realistic about the darkness. All of us know the brokenness of the present world that we live in and the darkness that we experience. The evil, the injustice, the loss that can suck the life out of us. And the reason he is introducing Jesus this way to us is because he wants us to have a tangible and real reason for hope. This is why John starts the gospel this way. It's totally unique 
compared to every other worldview, every other religious experience. John is saying, I want you to see that the resources for facing the darkness do not exist in and of you. They exist in him, outside of you. We live in a world that says essentially this in a thousand different ways. You do you. You do you. And if you're not feeling right, treat yourself. All right? Go find something in creation and treat yourself. And that way, you can get restabilized and re-energized, and you can find the resources in and of yourself to have more strength and wisdom and faith. And John says, there's nothing to that. That will never work. The resources for facing the darkness are found outside of you and outside of this world, in fact, an eternal divine being who existed three in one. This is where we find the hope for the darkness outside of ourselves. Tell you a story about fifth grade field day. We had this thing. (laughs) I hated it. Uh, (laughs) Field day day at the elementary school. There was always a kickball tournament. And uh, you did it by your homeroom. My homeroom was pretty handicapped. We didn't have anybody that was very good. And uh, what was particularly annoying on field day this year in fifth grade was that there was another team that was killing it. And the reason was because they had a guy on their team that was a head taller than everybody else, and he had a mustache in fifth grade. (laughs) And uh, it was because he was supposed to be in seventh grade, but he was held back a little bit, and his name was Corey Manus, and Corey Manus was crushing the kickball, taking his team to field day glory. And um, as we were losing, and my little group of friends was heading back to the school uh, for lunch, Uh, I made this little comment. I said something about Corey that I shouldn't have said. Something to the effect of, hey, you know, if his brains would ever catch up to his body, then we wouldn't be dealing with a full-grown man in fifth grade. And um, the problem was none of my friends laughed at the story. And what I realized was because Corey was right behind me, as I was saying. And suddenly I entered into an alternate reality where there was a circle that formed around me and Corey was putting his finger in my chest and he said, by the end of this day, you'll be dead. I will kill you. And when you, get, when you head to the school bus, you better run because I'm coming for you. And uh, so the rest of the day, gloom, darkness descended upon my little fifth grade heart. And um, I felt alone, I felt terrified and I knew this wasn't gonna end well. But I wanna tell you, I had one good friend. I had one good friend, and his name was Doug Haney. Now, Doug Haney also probably should have been in seventh grade. He was in fifth, but he was big enough to be the offensive tackle and tight end on the middle school football team. And Doug and I were friends. And as rumors were circulating about what Corey was going to do to me at the end of the day, another rumor started to play out, and that was this, Doug has your back. Doug has your back. And all I could do was hope that was true. And as I walked out of my class at the last period and started towards the bus, right outside my classroom was Doug waiting for me to escort me to the bus. And I started walking to the bus with this sense of pride and confidence. It's going to be okay. Corey is not going to take me apart. And as we got out to the bus, Corey met me and Doug. And pretty soon the circle formed around Doug and Corey And I just kind of took a step back and walked up to bus 282, which drove me safely home to 210 Willow Trace Court. 
And I lived. And I was good. And it wasn't anything that had to do with me. Because where was my confidence? And where was my hope? It was in Doug. It wasn't in me. You see, what is crazy about this gospel is that John is beginning his gospel this way. He's wanting to convince you, yes, the darkness is real. The things that you are facing in life, there's trouble. There's the reality of sin. There's a curse in the world. But I want you to know that God himself has done something about the darkness. That this word who was God and was with God in the beginning, he formed all things, has come into being and dwelt among us. He came to our practice in order to address the darkness and to bring life and light to human beings. And we have embraced the darkness instead of the light. And so the strength of our confidence, what he's telling us, is not based on our goodness or our intellect or our accomplishments. It's based on the fact that this very God, triune, relational in nature, with all the power in his word, has done something about the predicament. That's the hope of John's gospel. And it's why I can't wait to study it with you. Now, as we go to the table this morning, I want us to think about two implications from this text. We're going to wrap up just with these two implications, and then we'll go to the table. Here's the first implication that is woven into this, into this prologue. It's this idea that though God's creation is really good, it's limited. So I want you to be thinking about that as you come to the table this morning. The creation is so good, but it's limited. It cannot give you the life that you want to find in it. It can't be the source of our life, the source of our fullness. Look at verse 3. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Verse 16. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. It's his fullness that gives us life. He's created a very good world and lots of great things in his creation for us to enjoy. But we're meant to enjoy them as a means to the end. And the end is God himself, fellowship and life with God. That's where we get our fullness. And so anytime that we take something in creation and then we try to make it the center, we try to find life and fullness in it, we're putting too much weight on it. And we'll kill it. A lot of you know Clint Watson. He discipled me in college. And this is one of my favorite stories that he tells. But the first time that he went overseas, he went to Mexico with Campus Outreach. And while he was in Mexico, their, their van was leaving the airport to head to their, uh, whatever they were staying. And he didn't know the language very well. He's just a good old country boy, Clint Watson. And uh, they're driving over this bridge. And he's in the front seat with this Hispanic driver, this Mexican guy. And he says, hey, listen. What's that sign say? Peligroso. And uh, everybody in the van was kind of like looking at this rickety bridge, wondering what that sign meant. And the driver just said, shortcut. Now, somebody in the back of the van knew better. He knew that the word peligroso meant danger, warning. And so they ended up saying, hey, listen, you know what that sign says? It says, drive at your own risk. This bridge is in disrepair. And Clint realized that 80 miles per hour, we're already committed. Like, whatever happens. And what he was saying is that in the same way, we have a tendency to put way too much weight on a bridge that cannot 
bear what we put on it, creation. What are the things that we look at in our own lives that we try to run to, whether it's relationships or work or finances? When we try to ask that to do something in our lives that it can't, we crush it. And in that, they end up with despair and emptiness. That's what darkness is. Darkness is being separated from true meaning in life. That's Jesus. And so this table is an opportunity for us to be honest about that. For us to say, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm doing it again. God, come. Be with me. I need you. You're the one that brings life. And then the second implication is this. As we come to the table, not only is there a limitation to creation and what it can give to us, but there's good news that our sin is limited. There's limitations to the darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And what John is arguing here is that the light is the eternal son of Jesus Christ. There's a really interesting thing that happens in John 13. John's the only gospel writer to note this. But in John 13, when Ju Judas betrays Jesus, it says that as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and listen to this, here's the detail, and it was night. Now, why does he give us that detail? It's probably because in one part, that is a moral commentary on the soul of Judas. It was night, there was darkness. But in another way, I think what John is doing is he's setting the stage. And he's saying, you want to know what happened for us as disciples? When Judas set up the course of events that led Jesus to die, there was this darkness that we were suddenly aware of. And we began to believe it was over. That everything that we had been working for, this light that had come into the world was extinguished. And everything that was happening, all the power, it seemed like it was over. And yet, in the resurrection accounts, we see Jesus step forth in glory. There's light the first day, walking out of the tomb, and light prevails. And so what we as believers would recognize now, and what the disciples realized, is that though there is a darkness, it's temporary, it's limited. And because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has taken away the power of death and brought light that can overcome the darkness. This is the great hope of the gospel. Yes, the darkness is real. But what this table represents is that because of the cross, because of the eternal son of God, the life and light of men, giving up his light, giving up his life, then we get to share in his sonship. His life becomes our life. We get to share in his light. And that's what brings us hope in the darkness. I want to close with this invitation from John. It's from 1 John, at the very beginning of his epistle. And this is what he says. He starts in a, much, in a very similar way, but listen to what he says. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. And he has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you hear what you're being invited into? Oh, and by the way, John says that when I share this with you, it makes my joy complete. You hear what you're being invited into? Fellowship with God himself. This is why we exist as a church. This is why we're here Sunday after Sunday, 
to enjoy fellowship with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then to share it with others so that our joy can be made complete. Let's pray, and then we'll go to the table together. If you're serving this morning, or on the worship team, you can come forward and sit in the front row. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, great, great mystery of, of mysteries is that you have come yourself in the person of Jesus, in the word of power, to bring new life and new hope in the darkness. And we come here as people this morning very aware of the different ways in which the darkness right now is plaguing us and causing anxiety and fear and turmoil and stress. And yet this table reminds us that you have done something about that darkness. And so we're here again this morning to enjoy fellowship with you, hope from you, life and purpose and significance in you as your children, and we eat it together. So would your spirit be amongst us? Would you fill us? And throughout this series, God, would you help us to see your son Jesus more clearly and better than we ever have before? And we pray in your name. Amen.